I mean, that is definitely the biggest challenge is that this is a brand new thing. Well, hello and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investing strategies in real estate and related topics in the western part of the United States. I'm Matt Williams, and I'm here with my co-host, Nicholas Cook. Our guest today is Isaac Jones with Perkins & Company accounting firm. Isaac's going to dig into one of the most interesting entries into the IRS code in recent years for investors, Opportunity Zones. I think those are rightfully named, and we'll get into that. But first, Isaac, thanks for being here. Really appreciate uh, you spending the time with us today. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into accounting, how you landed at Perkins. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I got into accounting like a lot of accountants. You're at college, and you do well in accounting, and you know you see that, and you kind of run with it. Also at U of O, Phil Knight got his degree in accounting too. So you know, if Phil did <laughs> no it, idea. that works. <laughs> That's good to know. I just learned. And so I interned here at Perkins and Company and then uh, have been working here ever since. I've been um, working here for almost 10 years, part of the real estate niche. A little background on Perkins & Company. So we're the largest locally owned accounting firm in Oregon. About 160 people. Our real estate niche is the largest tax real estate niche in the area. Um, Maybe about 25 people or so. And so I work with all types of areas within the real estate world, be that private investment funds, developers, contractors, architects, property owners, managers, brokers, and just generally investors. Nice. Now, uh, I've seen you guys also uh, doing presentations and whatnot. So you, you guys put on quite a bit of public education really for your clients and the public too, right? Yeah, that's a big part of what we do as well. We really like to kind of be integrated into the industry. We hold what we call a real estate connection event, which we put on two to three times a year. And I think that's what you're referring to. And with those, we kind of have, you know, some of our, you know, clients or friends of the firm come speak about a topic that we see as a hot topic in the industry, trying to educate both our clients as well as just the general public. Yeah. And, you know, our, our local community really involves two states. We're right on the line, too. So you do quite a bit in uh, southwest Was- Washington as well as uh, Portland Metro, right? Correct. Yeah. A huge part of our business is up in southwest Washington. I mean, we're incredibly bullish on the area, the new waterfront up there and the downtown area. I mean, and those being which we'll get into those being opportunity zones, I mean, only moves that more so in that direction. But, yeah, our firm, I think probably 25% of our revenues are associated with Southwest Washington. Nice. Nice. Great. Well, uh, Nick and I are really excited to talk to you a little bit about Opportunity Zones, and uh, we'll go ahead and get get right into the, uh, the topic. Yeah, absolutely. Isaac, thanks for being here. This is a topic I wanted to learn a lot more about and really dive into. Obviously, it's pretty complex, so having experts like you to help us navigate this and for our listeners this is going to be awesome. What is an opportunity zone and how did they come about? Yeah, so that's that's usually where we start with this conversation. So the opportunity zone was a product of the Tax Cut and Job Act of 2017. And so it's seven pages of a thousand plus pages, code section 1400Z2, that designated this new investment tool. The intent of this tool is to incentivize investment in distressed communities across the US. And so how that worked is this code section came out, then there was a period where governors of all of the states were able to designate census tracts within their communities that had 20% poverty. 
And um, then those census tracts, I think there are maybe, you know, 8,500, I think, or so around the United States. Those were designated as areas that investment could go into. And we'll get into all the tax benefits and et cetera, et cetera, as we um, continue this conversation. But um, that's where they actually were created. Now, where it actually started was um, prior to the Tax Cuts and Job Act back in the Obama administration. That's where it was originally introduced by Tim Scott of South Carolina and Cory Booker, who we all know now who's running for president, and also Sean Parker, one of the original Facebook folks and the starter Napster. He was the idea guy behind this. Interesting. So this is a, a bipartisan bill or act that went into effect? Correct, correct. And that's, you know, one thing that, you know, really gives it legs and also hopefully gives it staying power. Yeah. Um, So one of the other pieces, too, you'd mentioned intent, obviously, um, for some of the underserved areas. But if I recall correctly, Parker really saw just a a lot of money sitting in the sidelines and not being used in the communities. And that was kind of kind of brought part of it as well. Right. Correct, correct. So basically, he started a think group that, you know, was kind of examining, you know, how do you solve some of these problems, Um, you know, that we have just poverty in the United States, we have, you know, the strongest economy in the world, but we still have all these areas, you know, that are impoverished. And so he was looking at ways to, to resolve that. And you know, his conclusion was basically you can, you know, contribute to foundations who go and put money out there. And that's great. But really, to make true change, you're going to have to have, you know, private equity come into the market and invest in these areas. And so to do that, it had to be something significant. And that's why we're all so excited. And everybody's talking about opportunity zones is because it is significant. And what it does is it provides incentive for unrealized capital gains to be re introduced into the marketplace and create investment in these areas. Whereas a lot of times people have unrealized capital gains and the tax burden associated with realizing or using those gains and that equity is so significant that people will just hold it until they die. And then you get a tax step up and that gain goes away, but it never gets reintroduced into the market. Well, that sounds like a great inspiration all around for the change in this tax code. Now, I'm sure people want to know what opportunities are allowed in opportunity zones. Yeah, yeah. So it originally was almost strictly a real estate deal. Um, So like I said, there were seven pages, you know, of code section that dictated these rules. And so that came out December 2017. Then there were the first round of proposed regulations that kind of fleshed that out a little bit. And those came out October 2018. Mm. And so Mm. at that point, the rules were defined as such um, where basically real estate was the, for lack of a better word, the only investment that people could really kind of see coloring between the lines with. And, um, And then the second round of proposed regulations came out here April 17, 2019, and that opened the door to operating businesses and and startup businesses as well. And on the real estate side specifically, um, you know, there are different types of investments that can exist. One, and the most obvious being ground up development. The second being substantial rehabilitation of existing buildings or improving previously vacant buildings. 
And then there are also other real estate type investments that could be such as, you know, farming or mining or, or those types of investments as well. Yeah, you know, um, you mentioned a few different phases of this, and I think that's one of the things that uh, can be a little bit confusing from the investor perspective. And obviously, from the CPA perspective, uh, this has been kind of a moving target and a developing process for you, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, that I mean, that is definitely the biggest challenge is that this is a brand new thing. There's, you know, two rounds of proposed regulations, which are proposed. So you can rely on them if you take them in their entirety. But there will be presumably final regulations forthcoming, which may change those rules a little bit. And those proposed regulations actually have certain sections you know, where they are soliciting feedback on, you know, whether the rule they are proposing is really the appropriate rule or whether there should be, you know, some other rule put in place to clarify or improve, you know, the intent of the code. Well, um, so tell us a little bit about the actual tax benefit and how those work. Yeah. So the, yeah. the general premise. So, and I'll try to keep this as high level as possible because <laughs> you get a CPA like me, we like to nerd out on all of this and just dive down the rabbit hole. But at the highest level, um, the tax benefits are multifold. So first, you have a capital gain. So somebody or a company sells something that results in a capital gain. That could be, you know, selling a company, it could be selling corporate stock, it could be selling real estate as long as that sale of real estate results in what we call 1231 gain, which has capital gain treatment. So if you go sell a building, the the portion of the, and this is where it starts getting a little bit, you know, down, down the rabbit hole in the tax stuff, but the portion of that sale that relates to personal property is subject to what we call 1245 recapture. So you have an apartment building, you sell that. To the extent the sale of that results in recapture of depreciation you took on furniture, et cetera, that was in that building, that little piece won't be you know, allowed to reinvest into an opportunity zone. Generally, people aren't buying buildings for the furniture inside, so that's not generally gonna be a big piece of the gain. So generally, property sale, large piece of it would hopefully be available to invest in this. So you take a capital gain, so somebody's realized the capital gain, then they invest that into what we'll get into later, a qualified opportunity fund. By doing, and they have to do that within 180 days. By doing that, they defer that original gain. So that gain that otherwise would be currently taxable (coughs) is not currently taxable, and they now have this investment in an opportunity fund. So as long as they hold that investment, that original gain is not recognized until 2026. At 2026, that gain is recognized with the caveat that you get a 5% and a 10% step up in basis is how it's defined, but effectively removal of that original gain if you've held Five years before 2026, you get a 10% removal. If you hold seven years before 2026, you get an additional 5%. So that original gain, you're only recognizing 85% of if you've invested by the end of 2019. So that's the deadline to get that extra 5%. After 2019, you'd be limited to the 10% because you won't be able to have held for seven years before 2026. And then the piece that really is exciting to people though, so those are kind of nice features, but then if you hold that investment for 10 years or greater, 
then any appreciation from that original investment is tax-free. Wow, that's substantial. So just to unpack it, and uh, I'm going to break it down just in layman's terms yes, for please, us please. Real, real quick. <laughs> so you have a gain. Let's say you sell a property. You have $100,000 in gain. If you reinvest that into an opportunity fund, which then obviously that fund invests into uh, an opportunity zone, then at that point, the $100,000, if you were to hold that for five years, you get a 10% step up in base. You hold that asset for seven years, you get a 15% step up in base total. Correct. So then at 2026, you're recognizing $85 of gain. Correct. And then um, if you hold it for 10 years, the new asset that you replaced it with, you don't pay capital gains on the appreciation of the new asset. Correct. Now, well, that that is an amazing opportunity. And so that's why I think opportunity zones, uh, being named opportunity zones really are fantastic. One of the things I think that is a little bit tricky, and correct me if I'm wrong, that in 2026, you're going to be paying whatever the gain is on the original portion that you moved out of it, correct? Regardless, you have to at that in that year, you're going that tax year, you're going to have to recognize and pay for the gain that you pulled out of the original asset. That is correct, and so it's definitely a cash flow planning, you know, item that people have to keep track of. And I guess one nuance there, um, and this gets a little bit into the weeds, is at 2026, you only recognize the original gain to the extent the the asset or investment has appreciated in value. If, you know, for some reason the economy tanks and that asset goes, that investment goes down in value, then you would be limited to recognizing gain equal to that lower value of the investment. Got it. So, so one quick question. One thing you mentioned is an opportunity zone fund. Is there some sort of fund out there or is that something you create to use that vehicle? Yeah, that's a great question. And that is something that kind of catches a lot of people um, kind of off guard because you hear fund and you always kind of think back to the traditional private equity real estate investment fund. You know, you have a bunch of people investing, you have a sponsor, and this can be that. But it can also just be a closely held, you know, two-person LLC that goes and, you know, buys an apartment building. I mean, it really can be any of the above. It has to be a partnership or corporation um, that elects to be treated as a qualified opportunity fund. And part of the whole um, purpose of this code was to incentivize investment. So they really have done a good job of, you know, there are a ton of rules. Obviously, there's a level of complexity, but it's pretty user friendly. I mean, Mm. to qualify Mm. as an opportunity fund, you basically attach a form to your tax return and check a box. Okay, so I want to start one of those funds. I'm not going to an attorney, I'm going to you. Is that something that I need to set up in advance? Is is uh, timing involved? So there are there are timings and so you still likely would want to, you know, consult legal counsel when setting one of these up. I mean, because at the minimum, even if it's closely held, you at least need an operating agreement. Sure. Right? You know, sure. So, so you have certain certain requirements. And clearly, if you're going out and you're starting, you know, a fund where you are raising capital, um, the SEC came out with some guidance, you know, where basically opportunity zone funds very easily can fall under security laws if you're going out and raising capital, you know, from people you don't know. If, if it's you and, you know, your spouse going and starting a fund to do an investment with your funds, okay, clearly that's not a security offering, but just a caution that that's something that, you know, developers need to be aware of. Um, 
I sidetracked myself. No, that's that's totally fine. This just had a selfish question there. Just wanted to uh, think about it operationally. Oh, the timing. No, but you were, I mean, your, your comment as to the timing, that was the piece, sorry, that I lost track of there. So yes, the timing is imperative um, in that the cap, so it's user-friendly, but the details are highly important in that you have a capital gain. You have to invest that within 180 days to the qualified opportunity fund. So it has to be created you know, prior to making that investment into it and has to be created in time for you to make that investment. I mean, there's a lot of leeway within this code, but one thing there's no leeway on is if you don't make that investment into the fund within your 180 days, then that capital gain is no longer eligible to be invested in a fund. And then that fund has to invest in qualified property. So then, you know, it can, I mean, typically for a variety of reasons, we're seeing these structured in a tiered structure where you have a fund and then you have another entity below it, which is qualified opportunities own business. And that business would be the entity that's actually holding the property. So like in a development deal, you would put your money into the fund and then the fund would put its money into this lower tier LLC, presumably, um, which would then acquire the property. So, and just for the for our listeners out there who may be familiar with 1031 exchanges, you know, you've got some of that same verbiage with timelines. Obviously, it's a different timeline, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but is there, the, there's no accommodator, right? Mm-hmm. You're just able to, uh, you are able to touch those funds. They go into your account, and then you just have to invest them into the fund within that time frame. Is that correct? Correct. There is no accommodator. There's no tracing of specific funds. Um, and another big difference between 1031, so thanks for asking that, is that 1031, you're taking the proceeds of a sale and you're investing those into a new property, whereas opportunity zones, you're only investing the gain. So if you had you know, um, a property where you had 100,000 of basis, you sell it for 200,000, you have 100,000 gain, you're only investing 100,000, not the 200,000, which would be the case in a 1031. Okay, good. That's a great clarification. I mean, one of the th- one of the questions that I get asked um, by clients about the opportunity zones as well, um, you know, is always, well, do I have to in- invest the entire thing? If you have a hundred thousand dollars in gain, can I just put fifty thousand into the, into an opportunity zone fund and still take advantage of that, and then just take the tax hit now and take the the tax hit for the other fifty in twenty twenty six? Yes. Yeah. No. You can take any piece of that you want. You could put you know fifty into one opportunity zone fund. You could put fifty into another. Another, you can put 50 in one, pay tax on the other 50. I mean, you can cut it up however you please. Got it. Okay, great. So let's get into some of the specifics as, as far as the basic requirements, because there are some acquire, uh, requirements that are really specific about improving the property within a specific period of time uh, and that kind of thing. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what you've seen to be some of the questions um, or challenges, maybe the some of the requirements that are the most challenging in, in this in this code. Yeah, yeah. So the substantial rehabilitation requirement. So that's the big one. Um, if you have a ground up development deal, that's pretty cut and dry. You're starting with land, you're building something, and it's going to qualify as a business, meaning that it's not a triple net lease, then, then that's fine. Um, if you are actually buying an existing building, that's where the rules get a little bit trickier. If it's been vacant for five years or longer, there is no requirement to substantially improve it. Though you can't go buy 
vacant building, do nothing to it, and just kind of hold it for appreciation in the neighborhood, that would fall under the broad anti-abuse provisions of this code. So if you do try to do anything that's kind of contrary to creating economic stimulus and investment in these areas, trying to game the system, there's a very broad anti-abuse provision. But um, coming back to the situation where you buy an existing building and you're improving it, um, the requirements there are that you spend $1 greater than the cost of the building to improve the building within a 30-month period. So if you go out and you buy a property, first you bifurcate between the property and the land. So you say, okay, I bought property A for $5 million. The land was $2 million. The building's $3 million. Now I have 30 months to spend $3 million to rehabilitate that property. Nice. And, you know, as, as you mentioned before, this is kind of a developing process where the IRS is even asking for some feedback. And you and I have spoken offline. As you know, I invest in mobile home parks and that those are kind of quirky mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. as far as this code goes, because there's not a, an improved value. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. we buy the land, but it has infrastructure, roads and sewer systems. And most of the time, you know, you'll have some sheds or something like that. But the houses themselves are considered personal property. So. Um, how is that seen as far as an opportunity zone, a, a product like that, or uh, how flexible are you seeing some of these guidelines come out from the IRS to say, oh yeah, you know, we didn't think about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question, and and I mean that is there's still some gray out there. I'm not going to commit to anything on that one. I'm not trying to stump you on this. No, but I mean, I think, I mean, you know, you have to basically look at the intent of the code and you look at, you know, you know, what is there? So there's, you know, there's not a requirement to substantially improve land and there's a recognition, you know, that land is a required asset for a variety of businesses, be that a mobile home park, be that farmland, you know, be that, um, you know, a transportation business, you know, that needs to store a variety of equipment in a large parking lot, you know, so I, you know, you can't go buy, I guess an extreme example would be, you know, you go buy, um, you know, a parking lot in, you know, an up and coming area, that has, you know, a very small drive-through coffee stand on it, you know, and then let's say you, you say the land was, you know, a million dollars, the coffee stands, you know, 20000 and you go spend $20,001 to make that coffee stand the fanciest thing you've ever seen, and you basically land bank that land. You know, that's contrary to the code. That's going to fall under the anti-provision. Now, you go out and you have you know, a mobile home park in an area that, you know, you're probably not going to be land banking. You're buying that, you know, for the operations, um, you know, the operating revenue of that business. Um, you know, you go in and, and you substantially improve, you know, the infrastructure and, and, you know, maybe any existing buildings that aren't pers- not mobile homes, but, you know, other, you know, community areas or, you know, a fixed property there. Um, you know, that, that seems a lot more in line with intent of the code, you know. So I think a key takeaway with this is that, you know, every single deal is very fact-specific. I mean, you've got your ones where you're clearly between the lines, right? Okay, here, I'm in the zone. I buy land. I build an apartment. You know, simple. And then you have stuff that's a little grayer. And so those, you need to look at the facts, and, and you kind of have to examine everything. Yeah. So um, quickly here, back to the entity piece. 
and this is another question that clients have asked me. Let's say that uh, one client has $50,000 in gain. Mm -hmm. Another client has $50,000 cash, not gain. They find a, a property for uh, $500,000, and they've got $100,000 to put down into this opportunity zone. Mm -hmm. uh, when they go to recognize that gain, how is that going to be analyzed if they hold that asset for 10 years when only half of the down payment was put down that was subject to gain, and then the entire property, the, the remaining portion of the property was financed. Yeah. So just yeah. give us a, a, I'm trying to keep it fairly simple just to look at that mix of some gain, some not gain in an opportunity zone that, on a product that's financed. Yeah. So there are a variety of ways where, you know, these can be structured. Um, the rules regarding what we call, you know, gain cash versus what I like to refer to as clean cash, which is a little funny because the term clean implies good, but it's kind of you know, bad in this situation because you're not getting these tax benefits associated with it. But if there's an investment made in a qualified opportunity fund that stems from cash that is not associated with a gain, that creates what they call a mixed fund. And so even if it's the same investor, let's say that, you know, I have an investment I want to make I have, you know, hundred thousand in gain, but the equity requirement on me is 150. So I put 150,000 in. I have a you know bifurcated investment. It's as if I made two investments in that fund, one for 50,000, one for 100,000. And there are very specific rules as to how that gets traced. That said, when you're going into a deal where somebody is going to invest as an opportunity zone investor and somebody's coming in with clean cash, what we're typically seeing is you have kind of this two-tier LLC structure where you have an opportunity zone that the person with opportunity zone funds is coming into. And then below that, you have, you know, another LLC, which is the qualified opportunity zone business. And that's the prop, that's the LLC that actually is holding the property. So then you have as a direct owner in that property LLC, you have the people who don't have gain cash. So you just have the clean cash being invested directly into the property LLC, whereas the gain cash is being invested into the fund that then in turn invests into the property LLC. So the property is owned by the fund and then other individuals who are not participating in the provisions of this code. And that's how we're seeing it structured. And then as far as the gain, um, you know, associated with a leveraged property. I mean, I think, you know, that doesn't, leveraging the property, all that does is kind of, you know, amplify the returns, right? It, the, the fact that it's leveraged is not going to impact, you know, the nature of the gain calculation to a um, qualified opportunity zone investor. Nice, nice. Well, uh, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us so far. We're going to take a quick break from a word, uh, for a word from our sponsor and be back here with Isaac Jones to discuss uh, opportunity zones. So stick with us. Every real estate transaction is an investment. Whether you're buying your first home, selling your current home, or looking for an investment property, you're spending hard-earned money and building wealth. Matt Williams and his team have the tools to make every real estate experience a great one. Unlike other realtors, Matt and his team have industry expertise and resources that save you money and simplify the process. If you're thinking of buying or selling a home or want to work with a true professional to invest in real estate, Go to bisonproperties.com to learn more about Matt Williams and his team. That's B-I-S-O-N properties.com. All right, Isaac, thanks for uh, joining us again. And we're going to dive back into this great topic of opportunity zones. One thing we want to know, and I know our listeners want to know is, 
how are they being used and is who is using them? Yeah, yeah, no, great question. So we're seeing two things. One, people who have gains that they want to defer, you know. Yeah, natural. Have acted, <laughs> right? I mean, those people are acting in our investing. Um because there's a clock, right? You have an 18 gain um, that you don't want to pay tax on. You had to invest, assuming that it, you know, and this gets into some of the nuance um, as to how you calculate the 180 days. Um, but assuming that gain was passed to you via a K1 or was a 1231 gain, your clock would have started at the beginning of 19 and you would have had 180 days, which was June 28th, 2019, to invest that. So there were many people you know, in that boat yeah. who did invest, be that um, going into, you know, a private equity, traditional private equity fund where people are raising capital to do multiple projects or maybe one large project, yeah. or some of those people created their own funds, um, you know, to, to go ahead and do a development deal or, or some other type of project. Um, and then some of those people actually did sidecar deals with larger private equity funds where basically the fund would invest in a single project with some individual who, you know, high net worth individual who had a gain being the other investor along with that fund in a specific project. So we saw a lot of people who did stuff like that um, because they already had gains that they wanted to defer. Um, I haven't seen a lot of people triggering gains to invest yet because of the uncertainty around the rules. So, um, you know, the the rules are there and and there's enough there to move forward, but, you know, investors are sometimes a little cautious. Yeah, it's risky. Yeah, and so people are kind of still holding off a little bit. You know, there's been a ton of capital raised nationally and a you know fair amount of capital raised locally here as well um, in Portland and you know the metro area southwest Washington, but you know I I'm not seeing people triggering capital gains to invest. It's more so gains that were happening in the ordinary course that are being invested. Got it. You have some early adopters there, and uh, to get your property identified and or I should say selected and identified by June and rules coming out in April. Um, that certainly creates some uncertainty, and like I can see where that is coming from. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you don't, and I guess just one nuance there to highlight is, you know, it, it, the identification of property. I, I know you just said that word without necessarily relaying that under the 1031 traditional definition of you know identification of property, where you have that timeline to identify um, within this investing code. You know, it's really the timeline for June 28th was you had to invest in a fund then that fund actually didn't have to know what it was going to do. Oh, okay. It had six months from June 28th, so it wouldn't necessarily, today, we have people who have money in funds and have not yes, yet invested that into anything. Okay, that helps a lot. It makes a bit more. It makes it a bit more comfortable. People don't know what their gains are going to look like until you know, 2018. So to be clear, you as an individual or a company, uh, some type of entity that has a gain, has 180 days from liquidating an asset or having that tax event to to invest in the fund. So there's some nuance there. If you have a gain that you recognize, you or a company that wants to invest recognizes, it has 180 days from that gain event. That said, if the gain is flowing to you via pass-through entity, via a Schedule K-1. So if you are an owner in an LLC, the LLC has a gain. The LLC can use 180 days from the date 
of the underlying gain, or you can use 180 days from the underlying date of that gain, or you can alternatively use 180 days from the end of the tax year for which you receive that K-1. So it sells something, you know, today, let's say. And um, you could use 180 days from today, or you could use 180 days from the end of 19. So 180 days from 1-1, 2020. And another nuance there is if it's a 1231 gain, and this was probably the one negative thing that came out with the second round of proposed regulations, 1231 gains, they are now proposing to require, and so that's the rule today, that you have to wait until 1231 to invest those. So even if it's not via pass-through, if I sell a property today and I have 1231 gain, I can't invest that until 1120. A 1231 gain is shorthand for a gain at the end of the year? Sorry, so 1230, <laughs> co- code section 1231. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a little, yeah. So 1231, sale of business property. So if I have a a code section 1231 gain, sale of real property, you know, a rental property or something like that, Um, then that gain I cannot invest until uh, my window starts 1-1 of the following year, and then I have 180 days from there. Whereas if I sell today a stock, if I sell Nike stock today, I can invest that tomorrow. But if I sell a building, I have to wait until 1-1 of the following year for that clock to start. That may change because it doesn't really make any sense. I mean, yeah, that's really fascinating. One of the things that makes it more attractive than a 1031 is because a 1031 is focused on like for like. And you're talking about taking you know gain from a stock and investing that in real estate. Yeah, correct. And I think, you know, that's pretty compelling to a lot of people, especially, you know, the market has been recently at all time highs. And, um, you know, a lot of people make some nervous, you know, they'd like to diversify into real estate. Yeah. You know, um, now that guidance that they've given that you have to wait until one one twenty could create a problem because then you're beyond the tax year that allows you the seven year benefit, right? Correct. Huge problem. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's it exactly. It's like to maximize the benefits of this, um, you want to get in before the end of 19. And and that's been taken off the table for 1231 gains based on the rules today. Like I say, I mean, this is an area that a lot of practitioners and people following this, you know, think very likely could change. No promises, obviously. I don't have the crystal ball, but you know. But it just—it's it, just one of those things that isn't quite logical. And it, exactly because of your point, it doesn't make sense to have it that way. Yeah. So that could essentially prevent re- people taking gains from a twelve thirty, or I'll just call it a real estate sale. So uh, it could prevent people wanting to sell real estate in order to put it in an opportunity zone because they'll miss out on that seven-year benchmark, and they're c- going to be capped essentially at the ten percent step up in base as opposed to the 15 they would normally be able to, or they could hit the 10-year. Yeah, they still would be able to hit the 10-year. So yep. I think, you know, it it removes a piece of the incentive that said that piece of the incentive is the smallest piece. And I'm not in practice. We're not seeing people overly concerned about that 5%. I mean, it is significant. It's 5%. You know, mm-hmm. it's not nothing. But really, everyone, you know, it's that 10-year plus hold that gets everyone's eyes big. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and this may be a nuance, but if the property is in an LLC and the LLC sells the property and then the LLC gives a K-1 uh, to the owner, let's say I own... Uh, I'm one of the owners of an LLC, and I get a K-1 for that. 
am I able then? I have to wait until you still. Yeah, have I still have to wait. Day. Yeah, yeah twelve thirty-one. Whether you sell it directly yeah. or through a pass-through entity, it's the gotcha. same rule today. Well, that kind of rolls into into our next question here, which is, you know, what are the hesitations that people are having in this regard? I mean, one of the things, obviously, you know, people are always looking at the market, what might happen. They're a little bit afraid of that. Administrations change, and uh, people get concerned about the rollback. And we talked about this offline, um, you know, just prior to to going live here. Um, each time an administration changes, people uh, either blame or glorify the prior administration or the current. And so people are, are can be hesitant about that. In real estate, Nick and I have seen a lot of, uh, of our clients get burned by modifications in legislation or tax code um, with real estate because you invest in a long-term asset that's not necessarily liquid. So tell us a little bit about some of the hesitations and, and is there a possibility that some of this might get rolled back? Yeah, no, this is a question, you know, we often get. And I think that there's a few things there. So one, we can hang our hats and, and hope, you know, that this sticks around because of the bipartisan support that got it there, right? I mean, this, you know, I, I think it does occasionally get colored as a piece of, you know, the Trump tax code, which, you know, really is not exactly true. I mean, it was introduced under Obama. It has, you know, bipartisan support when it was introduced. So really, it should have, we would hope, staying power. That said, you never know what's going to happen. Um, but investments that are made, you know, would have to be grandfathered in, you know, they're not going to go roll back, um, you know, things that have already been done, what they might do is they could you know, cut the investment period short, right? It could be like, you know, 2020, um, let's say they pass 2021, they make this go away. And so instead of being able to invest all the way up to 2026, um, you'd be limited to only being able to invest to when the law changed. They're not going to go and change, you know, I've got an investment in a qualified opportunity zone. Um, now they changed the law and I have to pay tax on it today and I can't get my benefits on the back end kind of thing. I mean, that's, that's not something that we're worried about. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, you know, are are you, are there any other interesting nuances you know that investors should really be aware of? You know, as far as um, going into a long term project, because I think one of the hesitations that some of my clients have had is that they've been investing in real estate in these long term hold assets, and this is so new. Um, they to delve into it even to the depth that we've done today, I think would be really advantageous, but still it's just kind of scratching the surface. But so are, are there any other nuances that you'd, you'd want to bring up in general? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the biggest thing to like from an investor standpoint is, you know, it's a real estate deal. You know, you need to be comfortable with the deal. You need to be comfortable with the sponsor. You need to be comfortable, you know, just with that investment. Um, the tax benefits are incredibly compelling. It's why we're having this conversation today. It's why my phone's ringing, you know, every day about these. But, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to do your due diligence. You have to be comfortable with the deal. Um, and then if you, if you can find that, something you want to invest in, and you get these tax benefits, that's awesome. Um, Generally speaking, I mean, it's a long-term investment, so that is, you know, kind of an ideal 
real estate investment should be the long-term investment. You know, you've you have people with capital gains investing in these, so you have you know generally more well-heeled investors who are investing for the long term. I mean, this is kind of what we want as a society for real estate investment is long-term commitment from people who can afford to do it and aren't gambling with their money. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think all that's incredibly positive. Um, some of the things that are kind of nuanced about it, you know, is, as you talked about earlier, the cash flow hit in 2026 and being aware of that the last round of proposed regulations that came out did clarify that there is an ability to, um, you know, refi and pull some cash out of a project, which could probably help with that. Um, that said, there are, you know, under the anti-abuse provisions, they're not going to allow cash out, um, like just completely take the investment out on a refi. And that line, you know, where that line is, is still not defined, you know. But I think that that's one thing that, you know, people are really happy to see. Um, another nuance, this is more, you know, on the developer side um, versus the investor side. But, you know, anybody putting one of these deals together should be aware because typically an investor gets paid um, in what's called a promote or a carried in or often referred to as a promote or a carried interest, basically, where, you know, they're not getting much until their investors get, you know, certain hurdles of return and and then they end up getting their return. And so they're basically investing, you know, their time and equity, um, you know, time equity into that deal and they're getting paid for that after they get everybody their money and, you know, certain levels of return as dictated in that agreement. A waterfall structure or something like exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. And so um, that back end return to the developer, um, even if the developer or the sponsor of that deal invest, you know, co-invest with their investors a capital gain, anything that they get disproportionate to that investment, which is considered that promote or carried interest, that does not benefit from these tax, you know, tax provisions on the back end. So if you bring a deal together and you get paid on the back end, disproportionate to your original capital contribution, um, after a 10 year hold, you still have to pay tax on that as the sponsor. Yeah, well, one of the things we talked a little bit about, but haven't got into too much, obviously, we're, you know, real estate guys, so we we like real estate. But one of the cliche phrases that happens to be true is that real estate is all about location, location, location. So do you want to talk a little bit about how these zones were identified? Are they really going to help, you know, underdeveloped areas? Um, Do you think that they are in areas potentially that are not deserving? Can you can you talk a little bit about what you've seen? Yeah, yeah, no. So, I mean, this is definitely kind of an area of controversy um, regarding this provision is so I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there may be, you know, and I don't know this exact number, but 8,500 or so zones. And, you know, there's a spectrum of those zones as far as, you know, actually being impoverished and distressed and depressed and, um, you know, being kind of more already um, improving and or frankly, already affluent areas. I mean, I think our city is a great example of that in, you know, the Pearl District is a zone, you know, that's probably the, you know, most affluent area of the whole city. Um, Swath of South Waterfront, um, downtown up to 12th, the Central East Side. Yeah. Um, You also have, you know, the whole downtown Vancouver, new waterfront up there in Vancouver. So there's a lot of areas that are, um, you know, not 
at all really depressed. And, and some of that stemmed from the governors being charged with designating areas and the rules being a little bit, um, you know, ambiguous as to how those areas were designated. You could pick, you know, I haven't di- dove completely down this rabbit hole, but my understanding is you could select census tracts next to census tracts as long as they hit certain rubrics. And then further, I, I believe, you know, Portland's last analysis of these census tracts that this was based on was maybe 2000, 2001 or something along those lines. So there was a little bit of outdated information kind of used in some of that. Um, And this is the same thing, you know, around the country. I think if you look at top 10 opportunity zone lists in the country, I mean, you know, Portland's right there, you know, five, six, depending what one, I mean, I've seen it number one on a few lists. Um, but there are other places around the country in the same exact boat. And I think the offset to that, I mean, you know, investment is going to flow to its best use, likely, um, from an investor return perspective, typically. Um, but this is still providing, you know, jobs for working people or, you know, employing construction people when the economy might otherwise have, you know, been slowing down a little bit. I mean, this is kind of adding juice um, to the system and it's keeping people employed. It's, you know, hotels are being built that are going to employ people. People are going to be coming to this region, you know, staying in these hotels, infusing the economy with revenue. Um, you know, so I think, you know, it it is not exactly at all times in line with the original intent, but still providing lots of benefit. And you do see, I mean, you know, there, there are other areas too where cool things are happening. So there's um, a CDC community, community um, development nonprofit out in Rockwood, for example, that created a nonprofit or a sorry a for-profit sub of their nonprofit so they're raising funds to do development out there yeah there's some some big stuff and going on in rockwood i think they are developing multiple blocks with new construction yeah and i and i think we are seeing investor appetite trend a little bit towards workforce housing and you know because a lot of people are invested in a lot of high-end you know downtown you've seen all the cranes yeah, yeah a lot class a five hundred dollar <laughs> yeah exactly you know a, a month apartments and so people are you know okay i have a certain amount of investment in that pot i'd actually like some you know workforce where it's going to be 99 percent occupancy you know for foreseeable future yeah well i think the banks want to lend on those projects too for you know community reinvestment purposes workforce housing affordable projects i think that's definitely something they are looking at now we've covered a lot of information obviously this is a pretty complex issue which is why we have experts like you are there any final points you want to cover for our listeners that we haven't covered yet yeah no i mean i think the probably the biggest takeaway i would like to leave people with is you know i think in my personal opinion, incredibly compelling, you know, tax benefit opportunity. Um, you know, it's going to have, I think, you know, huge benefits to our local economy and, and many local economies around, you know, the region. Um, that said, there's still, you know, things changing related to this. There's enough information out there and guidance that people are, you know, able to invest now and, and things are moving forward. Um, but because of that, you know, I think professionals just, you know, you need to be consulting people who are um, kind of in touch with what's happening here because the devil's in the details on this. And it's meant to be user friendly, but, you know, there are certain things you definitely need to do to preserve your ability to take advantage of the code. 
user-friendly and IRS code. I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe for you, Isaac. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, contrary to like the new markets tax credit or like some of the things mm. that have previously been instituted where you would have to, you know, incur 60000 in legal fees to get off the ground, right? So it was only the big boys doing those deals. Yeah. This one, I mean, you know, there's a certain requisite level of, you know, complication for sure, but it it really can be your average investors and your kind of, you know, high net worth, but like lower end high net worth individuals, you know, who can actually take advantage of this versus it being strictly large organizations. Okay. I think that's, that's really good to hear. And it's interesting how many real estate professionals don't know about this. I mean, we've talked, the mobile home park that I'm buying in uh, Wyoming right now is in an opportunity zone and the real estate agent that I'm working with over there does not know what an opportunity zone is. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it's just there. <laughs> That's why we're doing a podcast. There, yeah, I'll send her. I'll send her a copy of it for sure. I mean, it, it slid under the radar, right? I mean, you had a, a thousand. I think it was a thousand eleven. I don't know. A thousand plus pages a new code section. Like I say, this was seven pages. Yeah. Nobody was talking about this at first. You know. Yeah. Obviously, it's caught fire now, but. Great. Well, um, we've definitely covered a lot of ground. We're going to do a little transition here. We're going to ask you a few personal questions, so I hopefully you don't get too uncomfortable. Very personal. But we're going to, you know, we're going to sneak these in here, and you know, we want genuine, authentic answers. Yeah, we we, we never give these to you first. So, <laughs> all right, Isaac, um, can you tell us about a time in the last year where you've, you know, whether it's personal or business, where you've had an aha moment? Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> Let's think, give me a moment here, an aha moment. Hmm. I think, I guess, and obviously I am not, you know, an investment advisor or anything like that. You know, I'm a CPA, um, so this is not investment advice by any means, but a a moment (laughs) that I had recently, and I don't know if this is the best answer for this, but just generally speaking, um, the thing that came to mind as you asked the question you know, regarding just kind of investing and, you know, like stock market kind of stuff. Um, And you have companies related to technology who are at the top and you have people who are catching up, right? Like some of these companies have gotten a head start and really benefited from that head start. And because of that, you know, the stock price on the multiples of earnings is very high. Mm -hmm. And um, now you have people kind of catching up to that um, technologically wise and um, those stocks are starting to hurt a little bit because the value of them is prefaced on their growth and their growth is slowing down as others are catching up. I saw this with Netflix Mm -hmm. and um, that's when it had the aha moment to me. And I think that that may apply to other industries as well. Netflix is a sore subject for me because I bought it a long time ago. I think it's like a couple hundred now. I bought it at 30, sold it at 60, and now it's 250 or something, you know? So I kind of generally don't like to talk about Netflix. But. <laughs> yeah, well, that's still a still win, though. You know, you came out ahead. and uh... Yeah, it's nice of you to look at it that way. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, that's great insight. Um, you know, getting back to the fundamentals is always key and something, you know, you get a lot of uh, inflated stuff out there and that, you know, that's what's trendy, but the fundamentals seemingly, uh, they're, you know, they're coming back. Can you tell us about an important ritual you have and do every day? I don't know about every day, but um, I think running is a ritual 
and I guess every day at least I'm doing some walking. So being outside, um, you know, away from the phone, the computer, um, I have some of my best thinking while running. <laughs> and, you know, and I'll be thinking, I mean, it can be thinking about, you know, a client restructure, you know, and like, you know, how can we structure this deal to, you know, really make it the most tax efficient or whatever it may be. And just when you kind of enter that zone, um, where you're kind of, your thoughts are just kind of, you know, free when you're running and you kind of get in that zone, um, I'll have some of my best thinking. So I like that to be a ritual and I wish it was every day. It's not quite every day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's hard to carve out that time, you know, uh, the physical piece really, uh, makes it so your hunched over computer work isn't as dreadful as it uh, feels at times. So, uh, Isaac, how would you measure measure success? In what regard? And that's you know <laughs> what it's an open ended question for a reason. Success for a business, success for me, success at love, success at life. Um, so I think, I guess let's think about that that i mean there's so many ways to scope that well, um, and to give you some context i mean nick and i have talked about this this is a question we ask guests from time to time and um we leave it open-ended because um depending on your phase in life and your phase in your career and timing um you know that measure or the way that you measure that success may be different so we're just asking you currently mm-hmm. you know in your position in your life and your career and just what what's your measure and pressure point when it comes to success? How do you how do you gauge that? Yeah, so I guess I'll answer it professionally and then life. Professionally, I think success you know is my clients' success because you know with their growth, I have growth opportunities. You know when I have clients who are out really doing amazing things, you know building you know amazing buildings. Um, you know, changing neighborhoods, you know, just doing really unique and interesting things. Um, it provides me the opportunity to learn. It provides, you know, me the opportunity to be involved. The more they're doing, you know, the more, the busier I am and the more it supports my career. Um, so professionally success is, you know, being aligned with people who are having success and I am, you know, participating in that. Um, personally success, you know, for me is, is mostly about family. You know, I think it's, you know, just having, you know, a happy marriage, um, you know, hopefully one day, you know, having kids, we don't have any kids yet, but, you know, having kids who are, you know, having a wonderful life, we just, you know, bought our first home. And so we're kind of laying the groundwork for that, but it's all about family. Yeah, that's great. Uh, if you could have dinner with one person dead or alive, who would it be? Mm. That's a tough one. Oh man, we, we, have, we have hard questions yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, these are all. Yes, all right. I'm gonna say that on every single one. They're just so broad. <laughs> um, hmm. Hmm. Not to go political, but it might be Obama. Is that right? Yeah. There you go. That's great. That doesn't even have to be political. I mean, his leadership and uh, the figure he is and the history that he made. Even if you know you're not, uh, you know, a Democrat who was interested in that specific political piece the figure itself mm-hmm. you know is is great so yeah that's awesome and definitely alive you you, you, you picked yeah. up picked yeah, alive true true yeah, it makes you, it you, more feasible that could actually I mean, Warren buffett might be another you know that'd be a close second you know yeah. people pay yeah. about four or five million dollars for lunch with him so. <laughs> yeah well, you, you could probably buy obama's lunch too yeah. and phil knight actually now that i think about it too he'd be an interesting guy too so i don't know there's a list right yeah absolutely Sounds good. Well, uh, hopefully my question is a little easier than the previous one. 
Um, if you had to choose between the two, would it be whiskey or wine? Today it's wine. The future it might be whiskey. <laughs> I'm like, working on that. I'm working we, on we that. We can talk about that. I've been dabbling for five years in whiskey, and you know. Yeah, he's he's a uh, professional whiskey drinker for sure, but uh, well, well, his knowledge base is pretty good too. Um, yeah, one, once you do have kids, you'll definitely need the whiskey. So I'll say that. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for coming in and spending some time with us today. How can our audience get a hold of you and, and uh, tell us a little bit about your information? Yeah, so perkinsaccounting.com. That's the website. I think that's probably um, the first place to go. You'll see me there on the real estate um, industry page where my contact information is located. Um, ijones at perkinsaccounting.com is my email. Um, And if you email me, I'll get back to you. I could put my phone number out there too, but I'd prefer probably the initial introduction. Email is always a little bit easier. And my phone number is on the webpage if you want to get it. Perfect. Well, thanks again for joining us. I really appreciate it. I'm sure uh, our audience I have lots of questions and uh, I've learned a lot today for sure. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, Isaac. Yeah. Thanks for having me.